Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about the rising numbers of illegal crossings at the southern border. Also, Americans are cooling to the idea of continued military and financial support for Ukraine. The House Oversight Committee announces its first witnesses in the Biden impeachment inquiry. And Dr. Orrin Smith of South Carolina Palmetto Promise will join us for an interview to talk about the erosion of free speech on university campuses in the Palmetto State. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us live today, if that's what you're doing. A lot of people do that on Facebook Live. You can find me at Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. It's the old website that I had, or not website, sorry, Facebook um, page that I had when I was doing radio with uh, his radio talk for all those years. I just haven't changed it over, just kept the same website. So Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam is where you can find us live. Or you can go to drtonybeam.com. That's Dr. drtonybeam.com. And you can uh, click on the link there, and it'll take you straight to the Facebook page. I think we've got it uh, switched over from YouTube since YouTube decided they didn't want my company anymore. Uh, but anyway, thanks for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. It's going to be a great show today. we got plenty to talk about and we've got a, a good interview coming up at 8 o'clock this morning. It's a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Oren Smith, who is going to be uh, talking about free speech on college campuses, specifically here in South Carolina in the Palmetto State. You may think, well, uh, South Carolina's a conservative state. we got plenty of free speech on our college campuses. It turns out not to be the case, especially for our major universities. And Dr. Smith is going to talk about that, plus some other things at Palmetto Promise, which is a just a great grassroots organization here in South Carolina based out of Columbia. Uh, some great things that they're doing. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. I uh, haven't spoken with Dr. Smith for a while, and uh, I think you'll enjoy that interview. So I hope you'll stay with us. All right, uh, question. How much money has the U.S. given to Ukraine? I mean, uh, I'm just curious if you know. And if you don't know, then don't feel bad. Don't beat yourself up because the way the numbers are crunched it's hard to come up with an exact number. Now, I know that's hard to believe, right, that the government would do anything like spend a bunch of money and not know exactly how much money they've spent. But uh, that's, that's what you do when you roll up a debt of more than, I think we're up to, what, $32 trillion, approaching $33 trillion. We're going to have about $1.8 trillion uh, budget shortfall this year is what it's beginning to look like. And of course, we don't know how this fight to um, for a, an extension of spending to keep the government open is going to work. We'll find that out by the end of the week because October 1st is when the government officially runs out of money and they'll start furloughing workers and all that kind of thing. And of course, again, as I've said, with the Biden administration in charge, just imagine that they're going to be funding the, the furloughing or rather furloughing workers that is going to make it look as bad as possible because they're going to get their willing accomplices in the media, as Rush Limbaugh used to say. By the way, I'm wearing a 
my one of my Rush Limbaugh t-shirts today, just every now and then. I like to pay homage to the guy that made it possible for everybody that sits behind a microphone and talks. And um, so I'm doing that today. So anyway, um, you know, the, the, the government will find out by the end of the week whether Republicans are going to come to some type of a deal in the House to put pressure on the Democrats to reduce spending to try to tackle some of that debt uh, in the spending provision that we come up with. And, and what McCarthy has proposed, again, is four areas of spending that would be debated over the next several weeks that would have to be preceded by a stopgap spending measure that would keep the government open for about another month while Republicans wrangled to get a plan out of the House that would fund four different areas of government. And I I'm going to mess around here. I probably can't remember exactly the four, but I know agriculture, uh, defense spending, uh, homeland security, and there was one other, and I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, um, that does, that that debate's going to sort of wrap up by the by the end of the week. But so when we talk about the government spending money, I mean we're we're talking about total irresponsibility, unfortunately, for you, for me for our children, and for our grandchildren, because the debt is going to have to be paid someday. And it, it's um, part, part of that debate is whether or not, a, as um, Senator, um, let's see, there were several senators that spoke out about this yesterday. Um, Ron Paul spoke out about the fact that here we are, we, we don't have the money. We're running up these huge deficits and debts overall debt, and yet we're sending, continue to send billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine. And that's starting to wear on the American people. So back to the exact number, again, we don't know because of the way the government spends the money. It's somewhere between 75 and 113 billion. Now, that's that's a pretty big range. I mean, that's 25, 35, that's, that's over $40 billion of, gee, I don't know what, what the real number is. Uh, it amounts, if, you, if it's, let's say that it's closer to $113 billion than it is to $75 billion, which is what I suspect, that amounts to about 12% of our annual military budget. About one-third of the total that's going to Ukraine comes from direct cash payments, and the rest of it comes from security assistance, military equipment, bombs, bullets, hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition, hundreds of uh, tanks and armored vehicles, uh, missiles, missile defense systems, radar, etc. Now, I was just reading from the Wall Street Journal this morning that uh, the United States is sending the Abrams tanks. In fact, they've got about 30, I think the number was 31 tanks that are now in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have been training on how to use the tanks, and so they're expected to put them into battle pretty quickly. But here's the thing. Um, the Leopard 2 tanks, Leopard 1 and Leopard 2 tanks that have come from Europe, they're discovering that the Russians have this uh, nasty habit of being able to target the tanks when they're on the battlefield. So they, they can be identified by drones and then send in drone strikes, send in helicopter strikes, target artillery to the point that the Ukrainians are not really able to put those tanks all in one place 
for something that in World War II we would have called Blitzkrieg, or the Germans would have called Blitzkrieg, which they would get their panzers, um, they would line them up, and they would go into a country and just overwhelm the defenses by the amount of armor, mobile armor, that they could bring to bear. But you can't do that today because of the technology of warfare. I mean, it, you, can, you, you find the tanks and you can uh, target artillery or helicopter missiles or whatever, anti-tank missiles uh, fired from helicopters and, and even drones, and some aircraft can, can take out the tanks. So they're going to have to use them in some kind of strategic way uh, to try to uh, exploit one of the breaches that they've made in the Russian lines of defense. The way the Ukraine war has gone so far, Russia moved into Ukraine, got so far, and the Ukrainian army was able to stop their advance, and they dug in. And now the Ukrainian army is trying to break the defenses and rout the Russians and kick them out, basically. And they've been able to break through in the northern section of the Russian defenses, and that's where they're hoping to exploit the use of Abrams tanks, that if they can get them in place and they can use them strategically so that they don't just lump them all together in one place and they can be targeted by the Russian military, that they can use this armor to exploit the, the uh, breakthrough that they've gotten and push uh, Ukrainian forces through that breach and perhaps route the Russian line, cause it to collapse by flanking them. So we'll see how all that works. But the, the bottom line is none of it works without American hardware, without American military support, without billions of dollars in aid. And when you start thinking about what, what have the Europeans done, because we hear this all the time, yeah, the United States is carrying a pretty heavy burden over there in Ukraine, but what about the Europeans? Because they're helping with it. Yeah, $30 billion combined from all participating countries. Now, that's stunning when you think about that the United States has given up to four times as much financial assistance as the European countries. But, of course, that's about the way that it always goes. I mean, it, it, it turns out we, we're the ones that, are, that bear the lion's share of the burden when conflict like this breaks out and the United States gets involved and we call on our European allies. They're going to step up uh, to some degree, but not the, to the degree that the United States. And they know that, and that's part of the reason that they can get by with this on the cheap while the United States bears most of the burden. They, they know going in that that's the way it's going to be. And in order to be considered cooperative, they can give a fraction or at least a small percentage of what the United States is investing and still be considered to be a full partner in the effort. And all I can say to that is Europe needs to do a lot more if they're going to expect this this action to continue. If, if the Ukrainians are, are going to continue to need a flow of cash in the billions of dollars to sustain themselves, then the European countries are going to have to kick in a lot more. And the United States is going to have to say, look, we've, we've already given, we've given billions and bi tens of billions more than what Europe is giving. So you guys are going to have to make up the difference. I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, the debate, though, about what is going to happen is heating up 
in Washington as to how long the funding is going to last and where the money's going to, where, where does it go? Where is all this money going when it gets to Ukraine? There's a new report over the weekend, and I actually watched part of this um, on 60 Minutes. CBS has been working on this report for several months, but it showed how widespread that the distribution of cash is in Ukraine. Now, it, all, it also showed something else. It showed the devastation that's taking place in Ukraine. I mean, it's um, th their cities have been reduced to rubble by Russian artillery. And so the, the way that the Russians wage war is devastating to the civilian population because Vladimir Putin doesn't care if you're wearing a uniform as long as you're in Ukraine. I mean, he's going to come after you. He considers the entire population a target. And so it's, it is really made an incredible hardship on the Ukrainian people, as you can imagine. But at the same time, then CBS addressed the question of where the distribution of cash, how that distribution is being made in Ukraine. And CBS says about $25 billion in tax dollars has gone, gone toward non-military aid. Now, let's, let's go back to the top. We're talking about $75 to $113 billion, about $25 billion of that, um, approaching a quarter of the amount that's been given has gone to local farmers paying for seed and fertilizer. It's gone to pay the salaries of Ukrainian first responders, and there are about 50,000 of those. Uh, thousands of small businesses around Ukraine have received money from the U.S. taxpayers, and all of this has been done in an effort to keep the Ukrainian economy above water. Now, I know that when you hear that, you're like, and, and I'm like you, like most Americans, you know, we get this idea in our head that, okay, we're giving Ukraine billions of dollars. It's all going to the battlefield. It's all going to equipment. It's going to soldiers. It's going to rations. It's going to keep the military strong, strong enough to push the Russians out of the country. But the truth is that the Ukrainian government has to survive in order for that to be the case. I mean, if the Ukrainian government collapses because the economy goes 100% belly up, then it, all of the military aid, the money going to fund tanks and bombs and bullets is not going to make any difference if every small business or medium-sized business closes and if the Ukrainian government is unable to function. So... Although a lot of people are shocked at this, I, I'm not shocked. I mean, I assumed that part of the aid that we were sending over there was propping up Zelensky. And a lot of people are mad about that. But it's the only way that it would work. If we were giving every dollar just to the military, this war would have been over by now. And Russia would have been the winner because the Ukrainian economy would collapse and the, the, the country wouldn't be able to survive. I mean, you have to have more than a military. Part of, the, part of the might of the United States, part of our power that's projected worldwide, is based on our economic strength. And the same thing is true for China. In fact, China's economic influence and strength is greater than its military strength at the moment. Um, and so we, we understand that if Ukraine is going to survive, if they're going to have a chance to win this war over Russia and push them out and try to rebuild, then they're going to have to have help. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, uh, get ready, 
because let's assume that there's a, a, a ceasefire, a truce, a peace treaty, or that the Ukrainian army is able to thrash the Russians and kick them out of Ukraine, which I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm a little bit more optimistic about the fact of a Ukrainian victory since there's been some breakthrough, at least in the northern regions. But just, just get ready. Whatever the end game is, Ukraine's going to come back and ask for billions more of American aid and European aid to rebuild the country. It's going to be like, it's almost like we're going to have to have another Marshall Plan. We, we rebuilt Europe and Japan after World War II. Germany and Japan were in ruins, and the United States leaned in along with others, but of course, once again, it was primarily the United States to rebuild these countries to try to gain some sort of stability. I mean, we learned a lesson after World War I. We went in, we devastated Germany, we, we gave them a, a terrible treaty to end World War I that punished them and made it impossible for them to get up off the mat. And because they weren't able to get up off the mat, the people became frustrated. They got rid of the Weimar Republic, the, the government that was ruling Germany, and they turned to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And we don't want the same thing to happen. Uh, we didn't want the same thing to happen after World War II in Germany or Japan. We wanted to rebuild those countries so that they could thrive and regain the international, rejoin rather, the international community. Now, the same thing is likely going to be true after the war in Ukraine comes to an end, however that comes to an end. Now, the CBS report is somewhat controversial, and I don't mean it's controversial in that whether it's true or not. Uh, I suspect that the research and that they've done, I mean, they've been over there for months. Um, I, I think it's probably pretty good. But here's what made it controversial. The idea that American dollars, taxpayers, taxpayer dollars, is going to farmers, small businesses around the country, uh, one woman that that CBS interviewed, that was interviewed for 60 Minutes, owns a high-end uh, knitwear business. And the, it, it comes to light, as she begins to talk about it, that the United States has actually helped her find overseas customers, which makes sense, right? I mean, if your country is, large percentages of your country is devastated and people are, are in abject poverty because of the war, uh, a high-end knit business is knit cloth business is not gonna is not gonna be doing too well because there's nobody to buy the products. So Americans, the the American government is helping her to find customers overseas, and they're giving her money to pay her employees to keep that business going. Now that's just one example. I, I don't want you to think, oh, we're we we picked out a business in Ukraine. No, CBS and 60 Minutes. Picked out, picked out a business owner to interview um, for the their document or their news show, but um, but but this is happening all over Ukraine. I mean, this is happening with a lot of small businesses. So over the last few months, as you know, the war has dragged on. The progress of the Ukrainian army has been painfully slow until recently, when they finally have at least a breakthrough in the north, they're still running up against stiff opposition in the south. But during these months, the sentiment of the American people has seen a significant shift. Now, before I talk about these numbers, let me just say this. In any conflict, in any war, when it starts, 
there's a clear line between the good guys and the bad guys most of the time. And in this, um, there's a pretty clear line. I mean, Vladimir Putin is the aggressor. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dictator. Uh, he wants the old Soviet Union to be reconstituted. Uh, he, he doesn't like the fact that Russia has been reduced to a, uh, just a, another guy type of country rather than one of the leading countries in influence and in power. And Russia wanted Ukraine. It wanted to start with Ukraine. It started with the Crimea region, and then eventually, um, when they determined, when as soon as Putin determined that Biden was weak enough that the United States was not going to do anything directly to stop an invasion, nor were our European allies, then he decided to roll in. He thought they would roll over, and he's been painfully wrong about that. So, but at the beginning. The Ukrainian people, I mean, people, you remember, do you remember the ribbons? Anybody remember wearing a, a ribbon supporting Ukraine? Now, maybe you never did, but I wore one. I mean, I know people that, I've, I've got friends here in the United States that have family in Ukraine. Uh, I work with a colleague who is from Ukraine who has family there. And hearing the stories coming out of Ukraine, uh, how the Russian military was treating civilians, I mean, it was horrendous. And so American sentiment toward Ukraine was high. In fact, Vladimir Zelensky was seen as some, as some kind of, um, of, of hero. I mean, he was the, you know, he was standing alone and he was standing in his, his uh, fatigues. You know, he, he didn't have on a suit as the president. President Zelensky was, was, he, was the, he was the guy. He was the warrior. He was the... Uh, the gladiator. I mean, he kind of kind of came across as a Russell Crowe type character, a Lehman Neeson guy standing up and defending his people. And the people in the United States rallied around that. I mean, they gave money for Ukrainian relief. Um, there, there was a lot of support for the United States pushing back against the Russians. Now, this happens in just about every conflict. War begins, good guys, bad guys, we rally around the good guys. War drags on, support for the war begins to falter. And I really lay this at the feet of, in, in terms of what changed the Americans' idea about war to, uh, like, Desert Storm, for example. I mean, if you remember, it took about, what, five days for the United States military to kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait? It, and, of course, it wasn't just the U.S. military, but it just as well have been. I mean, it, we worked with our allies. There were a lot of countries involved, but it was the technology and the power of the United States military that defeated the seventh largest army on the planet. Now, at the, t the Iraqi army, and the time, if you remember, those of you who are old enough to remember, um, you know, the, the uh, Desert Storm, there were a lot of people in the media saying, well, the United States might be biting off more than we can chew. They talked about the awesome power of the Iranian military. And, of course, we went in there and it took about four or five days to decimate, to devastate the Iranian forces and to drive them out of, out of Kuwait. And so it's the first opportunity we had as Americans to see some of the military technology that was on display. Uh, when you think about 
You remember those pictures on CNN and, and different places where they were showing uh, the, the, the bombs, actually the laser-guided bombs or however they're, whatever the guidance system is now, they were, they were shown going in and hitting a building directly, and everybody was like, wow, look at all this technology. It's like watching a Star Wars movie. And everybody got pumped up and patriotic and pretty much behind the war effort. And then the same thing in the war in Afghanistan when we were attacked um, and on 9-11, went to war in Afghanistan, and then the war in Iraq. But as it wears on, people's patience wears thin. And every we, we thought that every war that the United States was going to engage in was going to be low casualties, quick victory, and we're going to declare a win, and then we're going to get out. And if it doesn't happen that way, then people get frustrated. They, they want to feel that, that good feeling like they had at the beginning of the conflict, but it's hard to feel that when the war kind of bogs down and instead of a quick victory, it looks like it's going to be a long slog, which most wars, by the way, are. According to the Washington Post ABC poll, the percentage of Americans who think that we're spending too much in Ukraine has jumped from 14% to 41%. Those who think we're doing too little has been cut in half from last year, falling from 37% to 18%. But now the same poll revealed that if you combine, 31% believe we're doing about the right amount. And if you add that to the 18% who think we're, not, we're doing too little, you've got a a slim plurality of Americans who still support what America is doing in Ukraine. That's That'd be 49% to 41%. Uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and a growing number of lawmakers are calling for more accountability from Ukraine, better understanding of exactly how the war is going, the plan that the Ukrainians have for winning the war, um, and I think they've got a plan. I mean, they're executing the plan. This counteroffensive is supposed to break through the Russian lines and to be able to decimate their ability to, to wage war um, and to cause them to withdraw and to sue for peace uh, because they're losing. I mean, and, and, and like I said, in, in one part of the Russian line, there is some breakthrough by the Ukrainians. So it's not all just a stalemate. Uh, but one of the reasons that people are concerned, I mean, Ukraine transparency, it, it, there's an a organization out there called Transparency International that ranks all of the countries according to how corrupt they are. And according to this group, Ukraine is number two. It, it's, the most, it's the second most corrupt country in Europe. So a lot of people are concerned that American tax dollars are being misused by bureaucrats or for business owners, for personal gain. Uh, and President Biden, in, with all this as the background, has asked for $24 billion more in aid. And this is probably, well, not probably, it's absolutely going to be part of the budget battle on Capitol Hill as to whether or not we're going to send more money. Because as more people sour on that, the harder it becomes. All right, we're waiting for uh, Dr. Oren Smith, who'll be calling in in just a few minutes. Let me see if I can get a little bit of this story in about what's happening at the border. El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser said the city is at its breaking point. That is El Paso, Texas. They're receiving, get this, can you imagine? Imagine this is happening in your city. Just put your city in, where you live in this equation. They're receiving 2,000 illegal immigrants per day 
and the city's chartered five buses to take migrants to their final destinations in New York, Chicago, and Denver. Now, according to city manager Jorge Rodriguez, every every single illegal that's being transported is choosing to go to their destination. So nobody's being coerced. They're not being you know tied onto the buses and made to go to these cities. They want to go there. Uh, and the numbers coming out of Eagle Pass are just as troubling. According to Mayor Rolando Solanas Jr., they're seeing the same number as El Paso, about 2,000 illegals a day, and shelters are full in both cities to overflowing to the point that means that many of the illegal immigrants are being released onto the streets, and that's led to hundreds of illegals living on the streets and sidewalks of both cities. It's not tenable. I mean, they can't continue to operate this way in these cities. Uh, at the end of last week, we had a brand new record for migrant crossings with over 304,000 entering the country through the new parole app or just by illegally walking across the border. 304,000. That breaks the old record by several thousand. And so this problem is not going away. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And the Biden administration is doing nothing. But don't worry, don't worry. President Biden actually gave Kamala Harris as the immigration czar, some the border czar, some more responsibility this week. So we know that that's going to fix the problem. It'll be it'll be solved post haste. All right, Oren Smith is with Palmetto Promise, and he's given us a call. So we're going to jump into this conversation here. Good morning, Doctor Smith. How are you, sir? Yes, sir. It's good to have you on the on the show today. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Good to good to hear your voice. How are things down in Columbia? Or are you in the upstate right now? Are you down are you down in the in the Midlands? I'm down I'm down in the uh, screen door over hell uh, Midlands. <laughs> um, but now, uh, explain that please because that's a that's well, a fairly it, inflammatory comment there to start the program. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a trough, you know, where right. heat sort of collects and uh, rises through even the though screen. the legislature Right. Even though the legislature's not here creating more heat, um, the heat just sort of settles. But I have to tell you, the last few days have been very yeah. pleasant, uh, very fall-like, a little bit, a little nip in the air. And so uh, it's it's getting better. Well, excellent. Uh, have you, you, are you still, let's see, East Carolina, right? Isn't that your uh, football preference? Aren't you a coastal, I, coastal Carolina. Carolina? Sorry. Sorry, I get my Carolinas yes, mixed up. The mighty Shawnaclears. Yes. How are they doing this year? I haven't followed them. Uh, we uh, went to uh, UCLA and played in the Coliseum, our very first game, and through three quarters, the game was tied. Uh, UCLA put two two touchdowns on us in the fourth quarter and won by two touchdowns. But we we hung in there with them for three quarters um, in LA. So we were pretty pleased. Yeah, oh, and then we got a I, check, you know. They wrote us a check yeah. for coming. So. Yeah, and it was a pretty nice one, I'm sure, because uh, uh, major yeah. universities tend to pay pretty well for those kind of games that, that, that they put on their schedule. And it's always great when you get a check and get a win, but it's great to get a check yes. even if you don't get the win and to play well enough to stay with one of the major programs in the country for three quarters. That's pretty good. Right, right. Well, listen, let me well, get to we the – we are in the yeah. uh, Sun Belt – I was going to mention we're in the Sun Belt – conference right and the Sun Belt um, had uh, so many of those 
get check also get win games last year. A number of Sun Belt teams right. beat major powers in college football. So it was sort of the year of the Sun Belt last year. You know, but, uh, at, yeah. some, at some point I want you to come on because you know a lot about sports and I, I follow sports pretty closely, particularly football and baseball. I want us to have a conversation sometime about what what the the, the transfer portal has done to revolutionize college football and to bring some measure of parity uh, to teams that before couldn't compete with the bigger teams, but they're beginning to pick up transfers uh, that before would have been impossible. That's causing their seasons yeah. to turn around. Yeah. It's, just, it's pretty amazing. But anyway, let's go yeah. to the, let's go to the point. I got a briefing the other day from Palmetto Promise, and I really appreciate those all of them. But this one caught my eye because it's talking about colleges and universities that are supposed to be a place for uh, promoting robust debates, uh, to share ideas freely. Uh, I'm reading from the briefing now, and to learn about viewpoints different from their own. And it, and it turns out that Palmetto Promise has discovered that here in South Carolina, with major universities particularly, we have the same problem with the stifling of free speech that they have in the rest of the country. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I think it's a positive uh, and a negative kind of kind of going on at once here, if that makes any sense. But going back a, a little space in time, the um, University of Chicago, which is one of the foremost research universities in the country, private university, which I understand tuition there has just gone over $100,000 a year. So that's oh, the level goodness. we're talking about, the University of Chicago. They um, had some concerns on their campus about the ability of student groups and others to speak their minds and to uh, to protest and to talk about uh, public issues and private issues and all kinds of issues. So they put together a group that was headed by their provost at the University of Chicago, and they released a, a statement on free speech. And that statement just started like a brush fire around the country with other universities saying, you know, those core principles in that statement about the University of Chicago, we ascribe to that. We, we want to sign our name to that. We want to agree to that. So now we're up to hundreds of universities that have said the core principles of the University of Chicago are uh, a, a summary of what we believe about free speech on campus. So uh, in South Carolina, uh, as short a period of time as two years ago, we only had two universities in the state that had signed on to that statement, and that was the Citadel and Winthrop. The Citadel and Winthrop. And I think Winthrop went so far as to pass a policy in addition to agreeing to the University of Chicago statement on how they would enforce or, or um, regulate, or in this sense, kind of not regulate, free speech on campus. But since then, we've had more universities uh, sign on. The third, getting back to Coastal Carolina, the third university to sign on was Coastal Carolina, who actually put it in their bylaws of their board of trustees that they ascribe to the Chicago statement. And then next was Clemson, and then after Clemson was the University of South Carolina. So by my count, we have five universities in South Carolina who have said we ascribe to the free speech principles of the University of Chicago statement. 
So that's good news. That's the good news. Well, uh, a recent okay. study was done that, that indicates that maybe uh, either, the, either the data is lagging on this new study or maybe these, these principles are not being lived out. You're talking about the fire, the fire report, right? That was, that was yes, talked about uh, in the foundation for yeah fire fire used to be foundation for individual rights and education and now I think they they've changed it slightly to the foundation for individual rights of expression but fire is a is an organization that has led or at least raised awareness of the the, the Chicago statement uh, around the country and you know. Senator Chip Campson, who represents an uh, area down near Charleston in the state Senate, he actually put a proviso in the last state budget that would require require all the state universities to ascribe to the principles of the University of Chicago. But yeah, you, that yeah. that statement was taken out in the House. Well, even so, even it did so, not make it in the final budget. The, the thing that drives me crazy, I'm, I'm just going to get on my soapbox here for a second. The thing that drives me crazy about these budget provisions, these provisos, um, is that the only power that they have over a university is, since it's a proviso in the budget, is to, is to cut off their funding. And we're never going to do that. I mean, the legislature is never going to enforce, in my view, these provisos because they're not going to cross the line of saying, oh, you're not doing what we said in the budget, then boom, you've lost your funding. I mean, I, I it's, well, or the only quibble I would have with that is sometimes these provisos, because they do have the force of law, they can, they can end up being litigated. Like you remember, yeah, yeah. um, in my memory, it's a little fuzzy, but the mask mandate or the ban right. on mask mandates, right. the way that got enforced was it made its way in court when one of the universities was trying to enforce a mandate that was in con contrary to the proviso of the most recent, recent budget. So sometimes if it gets into litigation or whatever and can be enforced by, of course, a court only has so much enforcement power as well. Right. But it, it can it can use sometimes it can lead to a a, a future piece of legislation like our our uh, tax credit scholarship for for special needs children. It was in the it was Gary Smith uh, from Greenville put it in the budget as a proviso from many years. Yeah. It just sat there as a proviso, but it was it was it was a true program and it was it was working and then it, it became a law afterwards. So sometimes a, a proviso is a step in the right direction. Okay, back to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressions. Um, they This report that they released has ranked the University of South Carolina as one of the five worst schools for free speech. Now, how in the world does a, a state like South Carolina with our major university, how do they get on that list? What is it they're doing at USC that's stifling free speech? Well, I'm not sure the, the methodology exactly of FIRE, but they generally have three or four different sub-areas that they grade, and based on their research, uh, they would they would grade the university down. One thing that's, that's interesting, and, and, and I'm speaking this, uh, in in public, in essence, by saying it to you on this this podcast, right? And I I don't know exactly know the answer to it, but there's one thing I think may be operating there, and that is when the University of South Carolina ascribed to the to the uh, Chicago statement, 
I, I became aware of it because I have trustee friends uh, right. at the University of South Carolina. They sit on the board. That were in the room. Right. That were in the room and literally told me as it was happening that they were doing it. Now, I have never seen that published anywhere. I've never seen it published that the University of South Carolina took that action. Therefore, my assumption is maybe fire in their rankings are not aware of it. So I think uh, one way of getting off of the bottom of the scale is to adopt a Chicago statement on free speech. So my, I almost think until I hear differently, there's a little asterisk beside the University of South Carolina because I don't think FIRE was aware of their ascribing to the Chicago State. Well, but let me let me ask you this, Oren. I mean, obviously, uh, it's not just whether or not you adopt a statement. I mean, I, I, it, it, you know, let's say the University of South Carolina published the fact that they've adopted the Chicago Statement. If FIRE is, uh, you know, testing the criteria at USC based on their behavior— then it really doesn't matter if they've adopted the statement right, unless they're right, going by it, right? right. Yes, because you, you could very well, it, it would be kind of like unplugging your part of your brain to do it, but you could, you could, in essence, adopt the Chicago statement, which says that we respect the rights of free speech on campus, uh, that the university is not going to take a position on, on certain political issues. Those are left to, to students to decide. And then you could come in with some kind of a policy that would say the only um, the only method of expressing your views on this campus is at the student union between 12 and 1245 on the third Tuesday of every month. Right. I mean, you could literally come up with some crazy policy that just makes free speech sort of a joke. Well, it I know there's was, everything about the Chicago statement. When I was still doing uh, radio, I, I talked about a story out of, of, about Clemson where they were actually, there were students who said that they were actually like putting squares on the campus where you could go stand in that square. And that was a free speech zone. So while you were standing there, uh, you could pretty much say what you want to, um, and, but outside of those squares, you had to kind of keep your opinions to yourself. And I just, I just yeah, remember it. We're, not, we're, not free speech. That No. Uh, not free speech Free speech all. is not in a box. Free speech means the ability for students to express themselves all the time. I mean, wherever they are. Now, there's some, there's got to be some rules about that. I mean, you can't just jump up in the middle of class and, and start a soliloquy. Uh, but you, right, unless you're the professor, right. but you, but then again, yes. you know, but for the most part, you should be able to have conversations anywhere freely. Uh, before we, before yes. we leave this topic, let me just remind everybody, because I actually responded to this report with an email, uh, to Wendy, uh, Dameron and, and she was so kind. Um, uh, I, I think she's really doing a good job at Palmetto Promise, but, um, she, you know, I said, Wendy, don't forget that when you put out something like this, that people tend to see this in light of all universities. And, of course, we've got places like Columbia International, North Greenville University, Anderson, Charleston Southern, um, and other places in South Carolina where mostly of the private universities have very little issues with students expressing themselves. I mean, they have, they have free speech. 
And so we don't, we don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think it's important to point out the problems where they exist um, in, in some of the major universities. Right. And of course, you know, one thing that I found very interesting is you know, we have a number of HBCUs in South Carolina. Right. We have two right across the street from each other in Columbia. That's Benedict and Allen. But a number of, of HBCUs in South Carolina. And uh, I just noticed uh, it was published um, just just last uh, late last month that uh, Benedict uh, College and their president uh, is is in the process of uh, enacting a. Um, a free speech effort on their campus. Right. And they actually received a grant from an organization to, to be a part of that. So I hope that that will be um, a catalyst. Uh, again, don't know that much about it, but I hope that will be, if it's in, if it's in um, consistent with the Chicago statement, Well, before we, uh, I think it could be a good thing. Before we uh, wrap up here, or uh, I, I want to talk a little bit, have you got a little bit more time this morning? You doing okay yes, on time? Yes. Okay. I wanted to yes. um, before I, I want to get into January and the few, the coming legislative session, but before we do, you you are a I mean you're a noted historian. You uh, I'm a garden variety historian. I I love history biographies. Um, I think we learn uh, great things from the past. We really can't learn anything from the future. Uh, we can uh, understand our present much better by understanding our past, how we got to where we are. So talk for a second about the place that free speech has in a constitutional republic. How important, how important is the First Amendment to us as the American people in retaining all of our liberties? Well, you know, I would rewind a, a little bit even to the founding of the, uh, to the, of the United States because um, so, you know, there are several incidents in English history or British history that sort of teed up where we became uh, as Americans in the establishment of the American Republic. And a key period in English history was the period around the English Civil War. This is where you literally had the parliament and the king uh, seeking to define what the role uh, of each uh, entity was, and they eventually actually came to arms and fought a, actually three civil wars back-to-back uh, -back in England, Scotland, and, and Ireland. And a lot of the things that provoked Parliament to assert its rights and to call for uh, a uh, respect for the history of, of England as it, as it touched freedom, going back even to Magna Carta and things like this, right. it, it hinged on some free speech efforts because you had uh, a number of uh, mostly Puritan members of parliament, Puritan citizens who felt certain things that the king was doing by marrying a Catholic uh, wife and, and starting to bring back some of the Roman traditions, which the Puritans felt very strongly against, they were treated, let's say, very roughly by, by the king. Uh, one gentleman had his ears cut off. Another gentleman had his nose cut off. I mean, terrible, terrible uh, injustices to people's physical bodies that occurred because they spoke out against the royal view. Right, right. And this this culminated in a in a strong 
a strong belief in the right of everyone to be able to have their say. And of course, we put it in writing. It's not really in writing necessarily in the English or British Constitution, but it is in writing for us where we actually put it in amendment number one to show how strongly we feel about it. And I, right. I love the old, the old quotation. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend uh, to the death your right to say it. Yeah, and we, when we passed the Chicago statement at Coastal Carolina University, our president used that quotation as we were about to come to the vote on it. And he took a very strong stand in favor of free speech because that's really what has made us a nation. We're a great big debating society in the United States of America, right. and we need to keep it that way. And we don't need institutions to take a side and, and that, that was part of the Chicago statement as well. This institution is not going to take a side in a public policy issue and tell you that if you're against official policy of this entity, this government or this university, then you are not only wrong, but you can be punished. It's kind of going back to the king in the 1630s right. and 40s. So this is something that has, has come through our history you know, on the facade of the National Archives in, in Washington, it says what is past is prologue. And everything about our past, it is a prologue to who we are today and how we live it out. Well, and, it's, it, and unfortunately, the level of tribalism and just uh, political division has led us to a point where it makes the discourse that is healthy for our country and needed, uh, it makes it difficult uh, because the the vitriol and the anger that is being expressed, uh, one of the things that God has put on my heart for 2023 and 24 is to try to be a leader in whatever capacity God gives me that ability to speak out about the fact that as Christians we have a role in our country to be peacemakers. We should defend free speech rights and do exactly what what you're saying. Defend them for everybody. And just because people are saying things that we don't like, we shouldn't try to attack them. We push back against the ideas with better ideas. And that's what's exactly. made America exactly. a better place. Right. All right, uh, quickly, the legislative agenda for January, getting as the legislature will be coming back in session, bills will be pre-filed starting in November. Um, so what is Palmetto Promise looking to accomplish through the legislature uh, with influence and, of course, working with other groups like Palmetto Family and the Catholic Diocese and the South Carolina Baptist Convention and others. What, what are some of the agenda items that you'd like to see happen? Yes, well, to, to give a little history on that as well, um, I, of course, was at Palmetto Family for a number of years, and uh, I started having a series of meetings with, uh, at that time, Senator Jim DeMint and his chief of staff, Ellen Weaver, and we met a number of times we kept coming to the idea that there needs to be an old fashioned policy council right. in South Carolina. Once again, we need an organization that does um, peer reviewed in some cases, economic research uh, that still believes in the white paper that still believes in the in-depth study, but that has an agenda and is not afraid to go to the state house and testify about their beliefs about free market, uh, principles in a, in a wide range of areas. So as that began to unfold, Senator DeMint 
uh, resigns his position in the Senate, uh, becomes the head of the Heritage Foundation, and then we, Ellen Weaver, and myself form Palmetto Promise Institute as a as a little heritage foundation in South Carolina is what our right. goal was and, right. and is. Of course, Ellen was elected this past fall as the new state superintendent of education. So uh, Wendy Dameron, who was a member of the board of uh, Palmetto Promise, who is from uh, Charleston, she's the new president. So we went into this this first year of a legislative session with a new president. And our goals for this session were to get certificate of need repealed, to open up the healthcare market in South Carolina, right. and to get education scholarship accounts to open up the education market in South Carolina. So parents would have, particularly poorer parents, would have more uh, more uh, options. We had been working for repeal of certificate of need. We've been working for uh, education scholarship accounts for well over six, seven, eight years. Um, and had not really made much progress, we did not think. But then suddenly, in uh, 2023, we see both of those pass in the same year. So right. we accomplished our number one and our number two uh, largest uh, goals. But with, within both of those areas, education and healthcare, there's still things that we can do. Our, uh, our telehealth law is pretty good in South Carolina. If it were like a uh, yellow or green or red uh, coating, I would say it's yellow. It's not bad. It's not fantastic. It could be improved so we could open up um, uh, tele telemedicine in, in South Carolina. In education, the uh, education scholarship accounts, the first year there'll be 5,000 accounts that will be available for, for students who have economic, special special economic needs, I would say. Uh, but 5,000 accounts with 700, over 700,000 students in public school, it's really kind of a drop in the bucket. We would love to see more education choice right. get up to bat but, but that's an uh, important, sooner rather than later. That's an important drop. I, d I just want to, you know, it, it, how, how many years have we been fighting? What, 15, 20 years to try to get oh, some I think Lewis of... Yeah, I think Lewis Vaughn uh, introduced... The very first school choice bill in either 1999 or 2000. Yeah, and we have a little, you know, we have a small program that existed, the exceptional uh, educational credit for exceptional needs children that, again, started as a proviso. Right. But that's very, very small. Well, but, but this a, is the this is the most significant one. It is, and it's a foot in the door. And I applaud Palmetto Promise and other groups, uh, by the way that are going to be continuing to lean in to improve school choice in South Carolina as we go forward, because I think that's going to be critical um, as we see our education system needs reform. Um, well, we're, we're about out of time, but, but listen, I really appreciate, we're going to have to do this again. Uh, probably need to do it. Absolutely. A bit more often. I, I really enjoy talking to you. It's always a pri privilege. Uh, I, I look forward to our next time. And thanks again for being on today, Dr. Smith, Palmetto Promise. Orin Very Smith. good. Always great to talk to you. Talk Got to you again it. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, Dr. Oren Smith, I wanted to uh, wrap up so that we could get to the last. I wanted to get to this last story of the day. Actually, I've got a couple of them. Um, we need to talk about the fact that 
the House Oversight Committee has announced their first witnesses. And you may be surprised, well, maybe not, as to who those are. Now, we need to be clear that these are not the only witnesses that the House is going to call uh, in their impeachment inquiry. inquiry. This, is just, this is just the first round, and these witnesses are going to be foundational. They're going to kind of lay out, if, if I understand the way this is going to move, you want to lay out the foundation of your case, sort of build from the bottom up, and then witnesses will come as as and, and add to what these first three witnesses are going to reveal. But before we do that, let me just pay uh, tribute to David McCallum. Um, as some of you may know, or you've probably heard, seen from another source, that uh, David McCallum passed away at 90. And, of course, he I know him best as Ducky on NCIS. I was a big NCIS fan for a number of years, but way back in the 60s, David McCallum was on The Man from Uncle, and he actually was the, the part of the reason that that program succeeded. I mean, all of the, you know, the James Bond burst onto the scene, uh, you had Sean Connery as James Bond, and then everybody was trying to kind of glom on, you know, to the popularity, and so they come up with The Man from Uncle, and it, it was, it, it sort of was making it, but not really until David McCallum's character, they started to emphasize him as a sidekick. I mean, you had Robert Vaughn was the main character as Napoleon Solo. And then you had, um, you know, his sidekick was McCallum. And he was, a he, he played Ilya Kurikin and, and Kuriakin, I believe is the way they pronounced it. Uh, I was a kid. I mean, I was, <laughs> you know, I was single digits when this was on television. But I've seen some of the reruns. A pretty good show. But he was he he was Napoleon Solo's Russian sidekick, and he was kind of a heartthrob. So he started he started getting you know the Teen Beat crowd uh, and Tiger Beat for those of you that remember back in the day. Um, you, you know they they started to tune in just because the guy was 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 a hunk, uh, was good looking. Listen to me. I sound like an old guy, don't I? But anyway, uh, McCallum sort of helped make that show into a, a show that lasted longer than just a couple of seasons. And then, of course, he was he was a fixture as Ducky, the medical examiner on NCIS, for a number of years, and just a fascinating character. One of the things that made NCIS so good was the character devel development of the main characters of the show. I mean, you cared about who they were and how they interacted. And it wasn't just about the whatever case they were investigating. It was about their personal lives and how all that intertwined. And I think NCIS probably did that better than just about anybody. All right, here's uh, real quick. Here's the House Oversight. They announced their first witnesses. Um, forensic accountant Bruce Dubinsky the Justice Department Tax Division's former Assistant Attorney General Eileen O'Connor and George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley are all going to testify as to whether Biden was involved in foreign business dealings with his son since becoming vice president in 2009. Now, you're going to hear a lot about Jonathan Turley. You know, what is he doing in this group? Why is he testifying? He's a law professor. What? Wh well, Again, what is this first round of testimony going to be? You've got to have a philosophical foundation where you talk about the reasons that what Vice President Biden did are wrong. And I think Turley is going to kind of form the philosophical foundation. 
And then you have Dubinsky. He's got more than 40 years of financial investigative and dispute consulting experience. This is all according to National Review today. And he served as an expert witness in more than 100 more than 100 times. He's testified in 80 trials, imagine that, uh, such as those involving criminal and civil financial fraud. And so O'Connor is in the Justice Department's tax division. Uh, she worked there for six years, is overseeing the department's litigation of civil, criminal, trial, and the appellate tax cases. And so this is their, their testimony is going to show the paper trail, I would imagine, the financial connection between uh, Hunter Biden's business exploits and Vice President Biden. And then you're going to have the Philosophical Foundation, and then you're going to have the Tax Foundation laid as to why, where, where did all this money go? Why, I would think one of the questions would be, why would the Justice Department uh, allow, why would Weiss allow the statute of limitations to expire on Hunter Biden when it was on the tax charges, when it was the tax charges that could be used to link Hunter to his dad during the time that uh, Joe Biden was vice president uh, that, that could implicate him. And so I think all of that needs to be on the table. I think this is a, a, a good way to approach this. And we'll see as these as, as the investigation continues. We've got some convincing to do with the American people uh, if they're going to buy into another impeachment. I think um, a lot of people are impeachment weary. I think a lot of people think uh, uh, President Biden, as vice president, did something that was at least um, immoral, even if it wasn't illegal. So I think they're open to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to see a full-fledged impeachment take place in the midst of all the other problems that the country's suffering. So we've got to convince them that this is the right way. And I think laying the foundation first is the way that the House should go about it. About it. And um, I hope to see some more of that taking place. All right. That's all the time that we've got today for Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam for the live program. Don't forget, you can download the podcast from Spotify or Apple Podcast. Please, 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 if you like the show, leave me a good review and other people might like it too. Hope you have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your day and I'll see you in the morning at 730.